There's a tradition of belief that when you're exposed to certain truths, that you have a readiness to be exposed to those truths. When you're exposed to a great teacher or great information, it means that you've been karmically purified and ready to be able to receive that. That is how I feel about you today. That you've been karmically purified enough to get to hear this conversation that I had with legendary tattoo artist Robert Ryan. I first saw Robert on Tattoo Age, which is a Vice show, episode 6, titled Fusing Hare Krishna Icons and American Traditional Tattoo Art. Very compelling title. And I fell in deep because Robert is a monastic while being one of the most sought-after tattoo artists who takes traditional spiritual iconography and creates new messages with it and new interpretations of it. He is someone who is in constant spiritual practice, whether he's tattooing or at home. He has laser focus on keeping himself sharp, on picking up on the subtleties of life. This is our first conversation ever, and it was brought to you by Devendra Banhart. Last week, while he was getting his hand tattooed by Robert, suggested that he come on this show. Robert took his suggestion, and that's a hell of a recommendation, because I am... I am a true fan of Devendra. Though he is my friend and soul sister, now I am a fan of his music and would be and his art and who he is. And for him to suggest this show is saying something to me. So it was a great honor to meet Robert in this way and to have things flow so beautifully that within a couple days we're sitting with each other. I now bring you this conversation covering a whole range of topics, including the romanticism of the Lower East Side in the late 70s and how there's a bit of that in our hearts while the Dharma gets expressed. This was such a, a kind gesture of Devendra to connect us. And Yeah, yeah, definitely. Were you a fan of his music prior to giving him the tattoo? I was. Um, I hadn't. Re- I'd seen him play in the last couple of years. Um, I was familiar with his first few albums. I think he's super talented. I love his music. Um, I just. I'm, I'm not really listening to tons of music right now. Anyhow. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I hear it at work all the time, but it's whatever anyone's playing or what. I'm, you know, like it's kind of like a collective of everyone that works there. So I'm hearing all kinds of music, but then at home I'm just kind of more in silence. Yeah, I hear that. Goodness gracious! Do you remember when that shifted? For for you when when you stayed when you started not listening to music and maybe even listening to you know chanting more than music yeah definitely it was when i started studying it more for yeah. sure so yeah. you know you're definitely eliminating things that kind of get in the way of you learning a lot of the mantras and i think uh, i think uh, exterior music can sometimes do that yeah um, but also i think i was i think i was burning out anyhow you yeah. know a little yeah. bit like I th- probably when we got access to all music all the time for 24 hours, <laughs> yeah. that's probably you know, I think that's probably when I started slowing it down a little bit. For sure. I mean, I've been a fan of yours 
uh, for a few years. I saw the Vice special. I don't know if that's probably the gateway for a lot of people who uh, maybe aren't as immersed in the tattoo world. But that special really spoke to me, and it was particularly because it's sort of my living right now is sort of more monastic, and it feels like that. It feels like the repetition, and it feels like you know the house is the space. And I think about you as somebody who has this deep understanding now, at least of their own life, uh, how this would find you, how this karmic predicament of awakening uh, would find you, and where Asbury Park plays into that. Okay, well, I think a lot of the times, a lot of these things are happen on on bodies of water and in jungles or, you know, like in these kind of like I consider living close to the ocean as like being in a very, very powerful physical state to be in. You yes. know, like I'm literally less than one mile from the ocean right now as I speak to you. Yeah. I work four blocks from the ocean. So it, it, it's constantly been in my life since I was, you know, since I was born. Yeah. And I have the feeling... And that's where I was kind of introduced to Krishna consciousness on the ocean, standing, you know, and then like, you know, you go to Varanasi and you're at the burning ghats on the river, mm-hmm. you know, you go into the jungle to drink medicine, you take the river, you know, like, so I think water had, had a lot to do with that. Gotcha. Um, but in the, if you zoom out in the macrocosm, I believe that just like most people that find their way to some sort of practice, and um, some kind of uh, magnetic pull towards uh, self-realization or just understanding of the self or get going deeper yes. into an understanding of the purpose of your life. I think it's the grace and of our karma that we're born into. I have the feeling that we've been kind of pursuing this a lot longer than this life. Right. Uh, you have to you have to believe in reincarnation to to appreciate that. I think, but. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, like that, that's not an argument I'm ready to have with anybody. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Because either you, either you believe it or you don't kind of, you know what I mean? I don't understand why you wouldn't. There's not a lot of evidence. Well, I think there's tons of evidence, but there's (laughs) not, uh, in in, in our society, there's not a lot of evidence that points towards it. But in science, I think there's more. Right. All energy is can never be created or destroyed. Energy kind of continues, you know, that's right. thermodynamics. Right, exactly. Did you have the sort of looking back at your story after after you got the zap, the Hare Krishna zap, and, and with the mm-hmm. smile face and you're under arrest for smile? Could, could you tell that, yeah. actually? I, I don't think that could yeah. be told enough. Yeah, I got I got hit with, like, the, the classic Grateful Dead parking lot, um, <laughs> you know, just like... <laughs> You know, the, this devotee, this this plainclothes devotee, like a plainclothes cop comes up to me and tells me that I'm under arrest for smiling. You know, it's like a total, it's a, it's a carny kind of pitch, you know, which is, I love, you know, yeah. I loved it, you yeah. know, and like, I, I, that to me, that kind of falls all in line with tattooing and uh, punk music and everything. It's just yes. like, you got to kind of have this pitch, you know, and right. there's always this kind of grift kind of happening in the background and just like getting shit done in a non-conventional way. And I, I appreciate that. And yes. that was my first introduction. This devotee came up to me and said that you're under arrest for smiling. And he hit me with a dragon sticker. And I was like completely enamored by it, you know, and I was yeah. already kind of starting the antennas were up for sure. Yeah. But that was my first contact. Amazing. And, you know, I, I saw it as a, an incredible blessing that yesterday in our hometown's parade, the Krishnas yeah. 
we're marching and I saw the face, I saw the smiley face that zapped you initially. And I'm like, what, in what world do I get to see this play out 24 hours, you know, within the window of speaking with you for the first time? Yeah. And this is like the week, um, in Pori where, where the Rathiatra festival began that it, it was two days ago they had theirs. So, it, and it travels around the United States. So it all doesn't really happen on the same day here. Yeah. You know, it, it happens, uh, weekend by weekend throughout the, the next like five weeks from now to the five weeks. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, I see it as, as a, uh, as a good sign. Oh, good. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, did you have the early sort of smelling Indian food and it was like, when you were young and being compelled toward it, like this karmic connection that you're talking about, looking back, do you have some early presentations of that? Not specific to India, but specific to the East, 100%. I was super into martial arts as a kid. Uh Uh, I learned to speak kind of this informal Japanese through the, the teaching of the I was taking judo as a kid, and um, I was super. In, I was actually more interested in learning the little bit of Japanese than actually learning the judo stuff. Oh wow! You know, but um, oh, and the philosophy was really cool, and like the, you know, the idea of like using the opponent's weight as like their weight against them. You know, and, right? Dealt a lot with balance, and it wasn't like a. It wasn't very aggressive. There was like kind of this like ballet kind of component to it, yes. and super in the discipline. You know, yes. and like. I'm not like I, I have disciplines in my life, but I'm not like into disciplinarians. Yeah. But I do. I appreciate someone that that can, uh, you know, exemplify discipline. And my, my my teacher in judo definitely did, and he he instilled it in us. That's amazing. Like you had to work your ass off when you were there, even though you were like a ten year old kid. You yeah, know? yeah. The steadiness within some sort of like the chaos of the dance of of martial arts. Yeah, hundred percent. Yes. So yeah, I, I had a draw to the east, you know, and I was uh-huh. super into. Yeah, I started reading about ninjutsu and stuff when I was really young, and that was always there. And then, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like that it was always something about the east that kind of, you know, like uh, I was, I was really kind of when I was young I, in the area I grew up with. In uh, I grew up on close to a river that was um, a cleaning place for the Native Americans here. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the Algonquins yeah. and I, I had like a real strong connection with them as a kid too. Like my mom told me that I had like these imaginary friends that were these two native Americans and I, that I had names for them and I, she, I'd be talking to them and she'd want, she'd want to know who I was talking with. And when I tell her, she'd be blown away. Wow. So yeah, I don't know if I was talking to some spirits there or yeah. just past life stuff, or I just, you know, made it up in my mind, but there was something going on there for sure. I wonder if they were, I wonder if they're still your friends. <laughs> I think so. I, I think that every, every friend that you you have in this life, you've had in many other lives, right. you know, or you've had it, you know, on the coil, you yeah. know, or on the wheel. You right. Know? And, uh, you know, I was just kind of writing about this. I'm working on this essay about Jesus, and I'm, I was I was writing about like looking at Jesus as a trans historic figure, not yes. uh, you know this old old world God, right? You know, yes. and uh, I think that if we look at our friendships and our relationships and the connections that we have in this life as like uh, as a greater part of the entire mechanism of consciousness that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to appreciate and love our friends a lot better. Oh, Christ was such a great study for me to connect with after the early indoctrinations, which for me, the early indoctrinations were pretty gentle, even though I, I came into the game in a, 
in Christian science. So it was like, you know, certainly metaphysical uh, um, ideas there, really hardcore about just like this life is perfection. Anything outside of perfection that shows up is erroneous. And it's a thought that is, is shared in so many different traditions, but within this one, it comes in the package of the suit, the people dressing up in suits, and we only yeah. speak this thing, and, you know, no free expression, and you can see how spirituality needs to be evolved, you know, in these old models at times, you know, much like our own, you know, evolution of culture or society, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think 100%, and uh, it, it's, it's cool that you said that, because that's what it's really kind of all about for me. It's, um, you know, just like, it's not so much like, um, it's more, I was writing about how like deciphering it isn't like trying to uncode it because it is coded. It's a coded language. All the, all the scriptures have like multiple levels of meaning, but it's more trying to decipher it from all the bullshits that that's been attached to it. Yes. You know, like all, all the all, every term is a loaded term now. Yes. Every term in spirituality is a loaded term. The, yes. the term guru is a loaded term. Right. The, you know the the term Jesus is a loaded term. Yeah. The uh, term yoga is right. you know. But if you you know if you if you get to the base of the the true meaning of the word guru guru and ru you yeah. know um, or uh, yoga you know like yoking yourself yeah. to your practice you know. Yeah. Um, they're not loaded terms at all. It's just, right. it comes with this context of these like douchey people that have ruined it in the West. Yes, totally. <laughs> and how is it that you, I mean, those have been my Achilles heel for so long as the sort of charlatans within the system, but it kind of also, it for me, even to point out that someone is a charlatan, there's an ego involved here. So it gets so dicey, you know, of like, how do I have a stance and where do I, where is virtue and is virtue in maybe just being sort of seeing all the perfection in it? Or is there a side to be on? You know, what do you think? <laughs> I think, uh, I think the charlatans need the charlatans, you know, mm. I think the, the, you know, the people that want to be cheated will be cheated, you yes. know, and like there's a place for them. Uh, I don't think any of the guru disciple relationships are false. Yeah. So much as the, like you said earlier, is the perfection of, of all things, you know, yeah. and like the people that need those kind of situations get those situations. Right. The people that deserve those kind of situations get those, you know what I mean? Like politically, and, the whole thing, everybody's getting, yeah. It, yeah, that's right. That's their particular dharma. It doesn't have yeah. to look like the stoic uh, asceticism, you know, asceticism. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't have to. I mean, yeah. it, it definitely doesn't have to. And like, I'm a householder, you yeah. know, I'm married. I, I, um, you know, I have a job. Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot of time to hang out in the caves. Yeah. But, um, that's not my, that's not my dharma, you know, right now. Well, you, and, you're somebody uh, like me who is, I feel like has, br- has brought the cave to your home. Like has brought the, the cave to here. modern, yeah, yeah, to your modern life. Yeah, 100%. The, the cave's in the heart, truly. Yes. Oh. Um, and that's the thing, you know, uh, pilgrimage, um, the inner pilgrimage is just as important as the outer pilgrimage, probably more yeah. important, you know. Right. Beautifully said. I heard this nuanced difference uh, in the idea of Christ consciousness the other day that I want to share with you because it kind of... Peace. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so Christ consciousness, I've always thought of as, uh, well, that's the real Christ, and Christ isn't a last name, but more it was a state, and the the Christ part is a state of mind where 
uh, it's sort of like that version of enlightenment within Christianity, you know? And that's how I've seen it. You know, this person said, Christ consciousness is not just attaining that state, but it's the pain moment just before the release, you know, yeah. is the consciousness, the, the ability to jump off the cliff, I guess, you know, in that moment and know that you'll be held. Yeah, I think that's one aspect of it for sure. But the, the, the entire Christ story isn't just about suffering, you know. Right. But I believe that that's definitely one of it. And that's one of the reasons why the Christ consciousness is really our consciousness, yes. you know, because we do suffer. Everyone suffers. There's no way out of this life without suffering. But we also rejoice and we perform miracles. Yeah. And if you pay attention to the magic that is in your life, you can have Christ consciousness right in your heart at all times. That's right. Um, If you you work to maintain it. Right. um, It's not easier said than done. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it is doable. He did it. Yeah. That's that's the message. He's the teacher. He's the guru. He's the... And just like all, all, you know, every one of them, that all the deities, and that I think that's the difference between Christ consciousness and Jesus Christ as a historic parable. Christ consciousness is, you know, the fact that anyone can attain it, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's something to strive for. Whereas it's not just like a thing they keep a bunch of your rules or politics into, yeah. or you know. You, uh, any of your isms, you know, yeah. that they attach to it, you know, like it, it's really something that should be strived for totally. rather than, than a slogan. Right. Right. I believe that as well. Um, do you, do you draw the parallels of Siddhartha's story to punk rock or to like sort of, I know a lot of kids who grew up in wealthy situations, but then they heard like NWA for the first time and it, yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, Oh, I'm a part of the problem. You like all of a sudden you look yeah. down and you're like, oh my my dad is like the corporate monster that they're all talking about, and so they rebel to the streets and go the complete opposite direction into the other extreme, and it's and and punk kind of really makes sense at that point. Do you draw any Buddhism punk sort of correlations? Man, I've never heard it expressed like that, but it's a very good analogy for it because it really does. You do find out that your privilege kind of contributes to the suffering of others. Yes. And uh, that that's a real, like, uh, wake-up call, and it gets you maybe into some sort of activism or at least just taking, like, uh, looking at things a little bit differently, looking at the politics of the world a little bit differently, the interactions between people differently. You might want to start treating people with respect. I, I started, I stopped eating meat through hardcore and punk, you know, that was one of the, um, you know, the noble truths about nonviolence that, yeah. I, that I reached through punk rock, even though I got into it probably because of, I was into the violent nature of it, sure. you know, or it was, I don't, I don't want to say I was into it, but it was intriguing to me that it was dangerous. The young man is. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. It, it's not football, but it's still kind of in that realm right. of, you know, athletic pride and ego and all that oh, shit. Oh, for sure. The, this, this underground music movement that's happened in this country and, and in a lot of other countries probably has served as a, as a really good kind of like, um, it's pushed people towards truth I yeah. think, more than, yeah. than a lot of, a lot of other things, a lot of probably more so than people that got that went to college. Right. Just exposing you know? them to the inarguable truths of life. You know, the, that all, yeah. that we all suffer is a, 
It's yeah. a great connective one that we always try and avoid somehow. We're trying to go and make ourselves look this thing that happens with the selfie where, you know, somebody with a grumpy face goes right into holding up the camera and then smiling eh, and then right back to grumpy face. <laughs> it tells you everything, you know, about the yeah. situation. <laughs> Uh, we're not being fa- we're yeah. not fairly representing ourselves, and we connect deeper to suffering than we do to joy. Over and over again, people don't know joy they, as much as they know yeah. suffering. Right? Well, the amount of suffering that you put yourself through to avoid suffering uh, gets, in the way of, gets, in the, gets into the way of joy. So I, I watched this uh, Basquiat doc, but there's this era of New York that's so romantic to me that I never got to take part in, which feels like that era of like late 70s when it's all degrading and like this great art is popping up and hip hop's being born and uh, graffiti cars are, are being done and and uh, and it's starting to emerge in the culture as, as having like a, a resilience, like here to stayness kind of thing. It, does any of that romanticism of the street sort of culture uh, motivate you early on to do art? Yeah, so I, I kind of caught the tail end of that. Um, I started going to the Lower East. So there's a train that go, goes from my house pretty much right here to New York City. It's an hour and a half direct straight straight away. Oh, that um, drops you off in Penn Station. Uh-huh. So I've always had I, I had really good access even at a young age to get to the city. So I started taking the train up there when I was about 13 or 14 in about 1986, I think was the first time I went up there. Yeah. So that world, you know, in the first place I went was the Lower East Side. Went to CBGB's. Um, that world was still kind of interacting. It was kind of, a lot of, a lot of those guys were kind of falling out, but the, like that early hip hop world and the hardcore punk scene were still kind of interacting. Yes. There were still just artists hanging out, you know. There were still artists in the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. There were still immigrants in the Lower East Side. Yes, um, it was before NYU bought everything, and like it, it was like you know pre Giuliani, you know, yeah. uh, David Dinkins, New York. Right, it was dangerous, but it was like fucking cool, man. And, like, <laughs> I was just, I loved going to shows. I loved seeing the music, and I was. It was before I really had an appreciation for like modern art. Uh-huh. I was learning about punk before that, but I could see it, you know, and I could feel it, you know, yeah. and you'd see Warhol stuff and you'd see like, I don't know, you'd, you'd see like uh, these great street street artists and I always loved graffiti and yeah. I always loved hip hop and I always loved hardcore and punk and like, it just, it, it was alive with that. It was still there. You'd see Ricky Powell walking down the street, you know, like, <laughs> cool. um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it was, it was all kind of happening there and like yeah. all those Lower East Side people interacted, but then, my true tattoo guru, yeah, the, like the the one that, whose example I I tried to follow and emulate the most was Tom DeVita, and he was there on on Fourth Street in the '60s, mm. and he shared a building with this guy whose name was Tyler, and they were like these like Gnostic Buddhist Hindu esoteric practices mixed into one. It was wow. like this tantric thing. So then he said this printing press and then he was downstairs, Tom was upstairs in the squat on 4th Street and they just had this whole scene like where Tyler would tattoo and as according to the face of the moon, there's a letter that Tyler wrote to the Dalai Lama about wow. what kind of inks, to put, what kind of uh, minerals to put in the ink that would yeah. make it like, a, a, you know, like safe, healthy and uh, approved by the Buddha. And we're releasing and- this on His Holiness's birthday. 
Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah that's this so, is so come awesome. Out. I'm honored. These guys were interacting with the early llamas that were coming over to New York in the in the 60s, wow. late 50s and stuff. There's this guy named Bill Heine who was the last person to be seen with Charlie Parker before he died. No way. And uh, he's the guy in It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Uh-huh. Uh, the the line that Dylan says about the crazy artist from the streets is uh, making patterns in your sheets. Oh yeah, sure. He's talking about Bill, who was tie dyeing in like fifty seven, fifty eight, wow. sixty, you know, up to sixty, yeah. and at Dylan's girlfriend's house, you know, or ex girlfriend's house, you know. Yeah. And he was friends with all those guys. He was part of that crew. So it was just like these crew of these like kind of esoteric Buddhist Gnostics that were in the tattoos and. Free jazz. How early in your life is that? Like, where are, is that influence being planted? At, at what stage in the game? Uh, early, before I started tattooing. Wow. Um, the first guy who I saw with tattoos was in their crew. He he had moved, he lived he grew up in my town, and he lived right by my high school. So I always had this connection to these guys, yeah. you know. And then that's who taught Dan Higgs, uh-huh. who I, I who I wound up getting a bunch of tattoos from and becoming friendly with, and becoming long long friends with actually and he's the one that kind of pushed me to start tattooing um but the guys the guy who taught him was in that crew with davida as well his name was tux Mm -hmm. so it was like these poetic kind of interesting cool you know just philosophical tattooers that weren't from like the biker world weren't from the military world you know they're the first ones to really kind of do it their way you know tom was tattooing out of a squat in the lower east side probably the most dangerous place to be in in the united states at the time wow the beat tattooists Kind yeah, a hundred. Yeah, totally. That's what they were. Yeah, they knew Harry Smith, and they knew uh, you know Ginsburg, and totally, they were down with all of those guys. You know that 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 whole scene on the Lower East Side. If you were down there, and if you weren't going to jail or dying, um, <laughs> you you were there for a reason, and it was to be like in this like tidal wave of art and culture and yes. just madness. The real count- counterculture is beginning there, and not in the psychedelic soaked sixties. I think it was more fueled by just straight up art and survival. Yeah. So that's an embodiment, right? I mean, when you, when you think about that time, you know, this Maya Angelou quote, the, um, they won't remember what you said. They won't remember what you did. They'll only remember the way you made them feel. And that's a good one. it's like such a feeling, this thing now that you just accessed. It's like you were there and it feels like you're carrying that. And that became like, you know, a part of your expression of like, your 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 default setting. It's something I've always dug is the sampra diet. You know, like the uh, I bow to my guru. I bow to my guru's guru. I bow to my guru's guru's guru. I bow to my guru's 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 guru. You know, like yes. um, I'm into the lineage. You know, yes. the more abstract and these folk lineages are even more. Uh, you know, like I, I get into those even more. It's like learning about these blues guys that were just like evangelicals that weren't even concerned with like uh, making records, but they right. just found them. The Gene Bernardo mentorship early on, the working uh-huh. at the shop, do you look back on that as like the sort of spiritual obstacle course that was purifying your situation to be here? Yeah, um, definitely. But I, I learned just as much from him. You know, as, again, you go to that kind of Siddhartha kind of thing where you, you, go, you go out into the world and you're going to learn from you know, every, everybody can. Yes. I read this book by um, Tahir Shah. He's a guy that goes and studies um, street 
magic in India. And uh, he meets a guy, the guy who teaches him, his main mentor, has him go out and talk to all different kinds of people and get as much insider information as you can. And, uh, like, he, he goes and hangs out with the rickshaw driver for a couple of days, and then he goes and meets these grave diggers that um, are selling bodies to science and stuff like that. And he meets the guy who makes wigs outside of a temple where they shave people's heads for, you know, monks yeah. when they were coming in, you know, doing the initiations, <laughs> things like that. So uh-huh. I think Gene was just like one of those, like, man, I was so into the inside world of that. It, although I wasn't a participant, yeah. I wasn't a biker, but the, the whole scene fascinated me. Yeah. And I, did, I, I learned a lot about morality. Of course, I learned <laughs> a lot about, um, you know, f- fear yeah. and, uh, and, uh, confronting your fears and, uh, and, and like, the, the power of your word, you right. know, and like the, you, you had to be honest with those people because they'd see right through you. Right. And, um, and it was dangerous to lie to them. So there was a lot of truth in working for him. And also, you know, he, he, he got tattooed by Tom DeVita. He, hmm. though being a biker, you know, that's the, the other thing. You kind of meet these kind of like, Hell's Angels, you know, he wasn't a Hell's Angel, but, yeah. you know, the term Hell's Angel, you right, know, like, you meet right. these angels in that world, of course, you know, I'm, yes. I met all kinds of people that had, like, uncanny kind of, like, um, clairvoyance or uh, spiritual leanings or yeah. morality or, you know, all kinds of different people that were just components in that world of crime and craziness yes you know you you being shiva the destroyer and your trimorti with your your yeah 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 yeah. your business partners Uh, mike schweiger is the is brahma um tamiak is vishnu and um shiva mike poor mike gets thrown into it he doesn't know it he doesn't care about any of this stuff but (laughs) (laughs) um but he he totally is that's his personality his personality he's just like a creator he kind of created the tattoo scene where we are and he's super into the lineage. Like he, he's like so connected to all the old masters and stuff like that. And that's that's a total Brahmin trait. You know, that's yes. what the Brahmins do. Yeah. They maintain the lineage. They maintain the teachings. And that's what he's maintaining. Like the mechanics of tattooing, uh, the technical application of tattooing. That's all him. And Tom is a total Vaishnava. Um, yeah. He's initiated. His name is uh, Toto Gopinath. That's his initiated name. Oh, really? Um, Beautiful. It, he he's like. Uh, deep in the, you know, the um, Krishna Sampradaya. And I'm, I've, I worship Shiva, you yeah. know, so it, it works out. And I'm the one that's a mess. It's well, no, <laughs> and also it's very interesting about your Shivaness because I was thinking about like the destroyer of the illusion. You found yeah. all of what you were describing is like finding this virtue and these, uh, these ethics and the morality of the underworld, so to speak. Yeah. You know, that's like the, you know, those bikers are just gurus, you know, like yes. they, they're, they, they're obsessed with death. They're surrounded by skulls and, uh, They'll push the limits of uh, society, but if, if you ever were to call on any of them for a favor, they do it for you in a second. Oh, you just gave me a beautiful image of uh, these monks who go in the charnel ground um, as part yeah, of their that's training. What I'm talking about. Right, exactly. Yeah. Those, yeah. but like, what if um, in this fantasy they started a band? They were like they became motorcycle rebels of the charnel ground. <laughs> you kind of see it sometimes. So once in a while, <laughs> you'll catch like a couple guys hanging out at the cremation ground playing a bajan and it's like whoa really that, it, it, it can't it can't not sound metal yeah there totally. you know what i mean everything sound everything's just so much heavier there right so yeah when, even just like hearing a guy pluck 
in a string. It just has like a different kind of vibration. The animals are different there. The people are different there. The sounds are different there. What's the most shocking thing in all of your back and forths from New Jersey to India in all the trips? And maybe you have a count on how many trips you've done? Ten. Uh, the last time I went was the, my tenth time there. What's the most shocking thing initially that you experienced that you know was the most jarring? Initially, I mean, it's always the cremation grounds. You know, it, it's it's the most disarming thing that I've ever done, but it's the most attractive thing to me, too. You know, it's the place that I've definitely, I feel like I've definitely accessed the most truth, wow. you know, in the heaviest doses. Yeah. Um, but the, the most stunning thing that I ever saw there was me. I was there with my guru, and we were just kind of, we were like kind of surveying the whole cremation grounds and we're kind of checking it out. We're like yeah. looking at some of the, the animals. So he, he was, he was actually kind of remarking on like how the animals were different there. Oh, and wow. uh, at, once he pointed it out to me, I was like, wow, yeah, they are. They're totally, you know, I've seen them there a bunch. I've spent time around them. The cows, they just look different. They, they carry a different vibration. The dogs are totally different. They're like Bairava's dogs. As we're talking, we turn around and there's two, Doonies, the guys who are burning the bodies, yeah, and they're warming their hands on a burning foot. Wow! <laughs> you know, there's oh. like a foot sticking out of the out of the um, out of the out of the pyre. You know, wow! And these two guys are just like trying to stay warm when you know, heat the, is just heat. Like yeah, burning big toe. Wow! <laughs> that and, uh, amazing. My guru, my guru says to me, like, "Can you believe what you're what we're seeing right now?" And I was like, "I, I, I can't." I really can't right now. This is insane to me. Yeah. It's, it's just so, we do so much to get away from the idea of death here yes. and to see people just so comfortable around it that it's just, you know, that you're able to warm your, your hands off another person's burning foot. Right. Um, you know, it really demys- it de- demystifies the, the greatest mystery in the world. Right. <laughs> do, do you find that you, the further you go on, you know, in all of the mystical traditions, that it's sort of a training and just allowing us to see what's been available all along, which is just the basic, uh, simple uh, energy of a room. Like, you know, nothing... Um, you know, modality based or like psychologically broke down, just the availability and the simplicity of, uh, that's what I feel like spirituality has become is just become the simplicity and naturality of things. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the ultimate goal. It's funny though. I was, I was thinking about this the other day because doing all these preliminary kind of steps in this, in this puja that I was doing. And, um, there's a lot of them and, each one is designed to awaken your subtle body so you are able yes. to see that thing in the room, the way yes. the room changes or the way things are different from one place to another. It's like you, you really kind of like it, it's crazy because it's these complicated, um, intensive steps to strip down to see the simplicity in life. Yes, you know what I mean? Totally. So, you know, like all these things that we, we do, all these practices we do, it seems crazy. Right? Yes. Like, I'm sure your practice, your personal practice would seem crazy to someone, to a lay person that didn't ever have any kind of exposure to that. You the know? repetition and, uh, of things is just like, yeah. it, it looks like insanity to someone else. And yeah, yet- just to sit on the floor is crazy to, to <laughs> a lot of people, you know? So, um, but yeah, so 
what you know, like you're, you're doing all these things to gain this very kind of simple thing, but the, it, that's that's the power of conditioning. You yes, know, the power of that that of all the things that we have to fight against and overcome, you know, our expectations, our desires, our thought, you know, our minds. Yes. You know, that, that, that's how, you know, like kind of diluted we've become, yeah. um, is that we have to do all these things just to get to that simple place where I think probably, I don't know, like 5,000 years ago, people probably had a little bit easier access to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 10,000 years ago or a hundred thousand years ago, you know, like when they're talking about different yugas, yeah. the, the one thing that always sticks out to me about the descriptions of the yuga cycles is the the prior yugas are always saying like, yeah, we didn't have to do anything. Uh, <laughs> like, right. We didn't have to, we didn't have to do pushas. We didn't have to do, you know, it was just, it was available to yeah. us. You know? <laughs> we didn't know but, we couldn't, the, you know, like people didn't say that you can't do this. Like we yeah. didn't have the, the naysayers of life or the, the limiters, you know, were not there were the limitations weren't as present. I feel like monks yeah. flying and the whole thing, like all of that is like totally a possibility. Yeah, I think so, too. With puja, with worship, when you're worshiping a deity, yeah. it really it's necessary to open up those subtle channels to really get the vibration of what's happening. You know, yeah. if not, you're just like kind of parroting mantras, you know, so you have to like really make your mind available to the to what's happening there right um which i which i'm starting to learn you know like it's taken years to figure that out because a lot of times i'm like it's pretty dry i guess anyone that's, that's listening right now like i don't i'm not trying to come off as like a inspirational speaker yeah. you know? but uh tony robbins or something but, uh, <laughs> it's fair for at one, least today the one <laughs> the one thing i can say is like it starts out and it's pretty, you get the initial attraction to this, this thing. And then it gets real dry. Yes. Real fast. Yes. And it stays dry for a pretty long time. <laughs> and it, it, it's really just the way, like, just like anything else. And I, I've experienced this in tattooing and painting and writing and other kinds of expressions as well. Um, that, you know, it just, you, you got to put the time in, Yes. For it to really start to see any kind of fruit, right? And uh, when, but once you do, man, it, it, it really accelerates once you get like a a little bit of a taste beyond the dryness that you experienced in the beginning. Oh, it's so that, insane! There, there was a couple years there where I was like, "Wow, nothing's happening." Uh huh. You know? Totally. No, for sure. Or it's, get, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> certainly it was getting worse, and it's all like the universe though saying, "Oh, don't worry, that wasn't yours." You're not losing yeah. anything. You can never lose yeah. what isn't truly yours. Exactly. Yeah. And you're not giving up anything. You don't have to give up anything. Renunciation isn't about giving things up. Right. You know, it, it's a being about seeing things for what they really are. You don't right. have to, you don't have to, you know, to leave your family. You don't have to quit your job, you know. Yeah. You can. You're free to. Sure. But, uh, uh, you don't have to, to get anywhere internally. I feel like that's, Part of what's happening here in the degenerate times is what's yeah. de- what's degenerating also is conditioning. Yeah, you're right. The idea of degeneration also with so many people talking about, um, you know, doing ancestral trauma work, you know, the ancestral mm-hmm. wound that's been passed on for generations, that tide starting to turn also shows like that degeneration doesn't sound that bad. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. happy to be a degenerate, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
My, one of my favorite bands is Devo. They're the de-evolution. That's right. That's where that comes from. What's so funny about your practice, too, your spiritual practice, is that it's so dry. Like you said, it can be that way. It's so re- repetitive, like tattooing. You would think that someone who who spends so much time of focused you know, intricacy would want to take their eyes off of that and just to get lazy, you know, in their time off. But you're redirecting that laser focus over to the thing that I imagine is where all the art comes from. Yeah. And meditation, mantra meditation, puja, worship has only helped my tattooing for sure. Especially with like sitting and like you said, like long term, long run, you know, focus on one thing. Also completion. Yes. You know, like nine times out of 10, I have to complete the tattoo, you know, you know, you can do multiple sittings, but most of the things I do, I do in one shot and they need to be done. You know, I tattoo people from out of state all the time. Yeah. You know, I might not see them again for another year or so. So you you have to complete. And, uh, that's part of the, the sadhana too. You gotta, you gotta do it. Like if, if you don't have the right stuff, you still do it. That's right. If you don't feel good, you still do it. Yeah. If you, uh, you find the time. You always have to find the time. Even you know that that that's like half the challenge. But it's also the grace. And totally. It gets to a point where like I don't have to do my practice. I want to do my practice, and I'm going to make the time, and I'm going to I'm going to have the means to do it. Yes. It feels like it's like a um, what it's done, and I'm just putting this together in real time, but sort of it's taken the best bits. You know, the bit of me that I said earlier has this romanticism around that type of New York. You know, like that has made it through me abandoning self somehow. It still has made it through as a part of the expression of the universe known as Jamie Carpenter, I guess, sort of. Yeah. You know, yeah. that part's still there. Yeah. I, you you uh, sort of letting go of self or your identities like the, there's this part of you that can't be unsaturated and expressed. You know, and I think it's that's, always there. Yeah, it, it's who you are. Totally, it's, it's who, you know, right. It's part of your makeup. Yeah, and that that's never going to disappear. What disappears are like the anxieties, the um, the hangups, the yeah. expectations. Usually, are the most important things. But once you get rid of them, you know, these like false expectations of how you think things should be, or the the false narratives and stuff like that. Once they go, you know, like that's when a lot of like the personality stuff, like the personality crisis stuff, that stuff will, will go away, but the really you ain't, ain't going anywhere. Right. You know? And um, it only kind of enriches, it, I think. Totally. You know? So any, and you can still like, you can still have, that's, that's the beauty of it. It's like, it, it's not that dry where you have to give up those things. Like yes. your, your ideas of the, the romanticized lower east side of New York, you know, like, yeah, that, that's not, you know, it, we're, we haven't become Mormons. Like. <laughs> <laughs> right, not even close. No I, offense to any Mormons. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And, or, you know, Reformans. <laughs> they, say that, they say that stuff about Buddhism and Krishna and everything, too. Can you speak of the Kaligat and how that shifted your art? Yeah, um, unfortunately, I've, I've never visited the Kaligat. I, sh- I need to go. It's in Kolkata, mm-hmm. but um, I was really moved by their artwork. Generally, that style of getting more Southern Indian, kind of more folk art. The thing that struck me about the Kaligat stuff was it was painted on the spot in the bazaars, you know, like, right. you know, in, in the market. And it was 
just like tattooing's done kind of as this performative thing. Yeah. The person that's getting the tattoos watching you, there's usually a couple, they have a friend or a family member with them. Um, and at a shop, you know, at the street shops, you, you're always being watched by everybody who come in and check out what you're doing. So, right. yeah, and, and again, it was this thing that needed to be completed um, right there and then. So you get these guys who are cranking out these great paintings in like three, two, three hours. And, uh, you know, uh, it just, to me, it, it was the essence of the deity. It mm. wasn't like all the pomp and circumstance and all the all the glory, which I love all that too. Yeah. You know, yeah. I really do. Yeah. You know? But to me, it just had this like real raw kind of just like, okay, that's Durga and she's killing the Buffalo demon and that's, that's it, you know? Yeah. And, and the, the expression, it's all very expressive, but not, not as decorative. Right. And um, I really love that because they don't have time or the means to do it. I love the humility of doing it in, uh, among the people in a busy marketplace also. You know, it just feels yeah, like to me, that, yeah. that was tattooing, you know, yes, that's exactly. the same thing. Like, right. it's, it's real common people art, yeah. you know. Remembering that first tattoo that you saw, what was the feeling in you, if you could access it, when you saw the, that guy with the tattoo for the first time? Well, he, the, the whole thing, again, he, he's part of this, like, crew of these, like, mystics <laughs> that, um, you know, like, as I learned more about each one of them, they, they're, they're all super special in their own way, but this guy just had such a cool look to begin with yeah you know he's wearing like a fisherman's cap with a real long beard you know i think he had like a trench coat on and he like went he he, he took care of his nephew who was a whole story in itself he was like this um i'm not sure what he had some sort of cerebral palsy but yeah. he was also like a clairvoyant and he would write he, he would get these messages and just kind of carry them and hand you like a message. He'd like kind of come up to you and, and hand you this thing. And it'd be this like cryptic message. And he lived there. And then Fred was his caretaker, the guy who worked for Tom DeVita. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he like leaned over and his sleeve came up and I saw just like, I think the number 77 mm-hmm. on his arm, but it was colored really cool. And then like, I think it was a butterfly and there was a skull. And they were just like real heavy. And I'd seen a couple tattoos before, but I'd never seen them like that. Yeah. And I was like, all right, this is, you know, just like, it looked like these like total mystical patterns on this strange wizardly guy with his like sidekick, you know? Dude, that'll do it. I'm wondering how you deal with being in the modern world, being in business, even though you have this Trimorti situation. This beautiful, this uh, this harmonious triangle. And by the way, the mysticism of the three, when you said that in the special, I have these three pockets, my partner and I, and then we always have one other friend. And it's for years, it'll be like that. And and it's so um, like stand by me or something. You know, it's yeah. it's like that that being on the road, like going towards a thing that you can't exactly see, but you kind of feel it a little bit, and you you know it's out there. And then having these different personalities come together to be like one thing has been such yeah. a thing. Well, the three is the the mystic formula. You know, the the third aspect of the two breaks the duality. You know, mm-hmm. once you have it, three it's no longer dual. The three is what balances it. And that's what the Trimorti is. It's not only creation, destruction, and sustaining. It's also waking, dreaming, sleeping. It's also, um, 
you know, the three modes of material existence of, um, goodness, passion, and ignorance, you know, there's so many of them, me, you, and the relationship between us, yes. all the yantras have some sort of triangle in them, you know, right. in, in some, some fashion, you know, um, the main ones are all triangles. So yeah, it's the mystical formula. There always needs to be a third yeah. and it doesn't have to be a physical third, but there needs to be a third in the equation. It's also like two sides of the same coin. The Bindu is one and then it has two sides. Yeah. So that it's, it's still three. Oh, I love that so much. How do you deal with annoyance? At the shop, we're not like uh, cops and we're not like super strict, but if someone's going to be problematic, it's not worth your time. You yeah. just don't, you just move on, you know, it's like, um, but you know, I've definitely gotten into situations where I've gotten in over my head and I've gotten run through the ringer with certain clients. It's, it's bound to happen as yeah. part of the job. I understand that, but you try to cut it off right away. And you try to be upfront. You try to be honest with yourself and with that person. When it does get to that point where it becomes like, okay, now this is a test of my patience. I need to remain patient. You do it and yeah. you go through it. And you know, that I think a lot of that kind of starts getting into my psychedelic training, you know, in, traversing those worlds yeah. where you become a lot more kind of compassionate and understanding of everybody everyone's kind of going through and you can kind of see yourself in them a little bit easier but uh when it comes to like this the bare bones aspect of the business and clientele and, and how you deal with them um i go more for the puja approach where right. it's just like you cut out everything you don't need and you get the job done, and you do it as efficiently as possible, which is the true definition of a sadhu, is mm-hmm. someone who, who is efficient without right. needs. I'm attempting to merge that concept with communication. I like leaving people with very little needed beyond the way it was phrased, you know? Right? Yes. Yeah, and... Yeah, an economy of words. Yes, you know, yes. like or an economy of uh, expressions, or you know, you're you're not weighting people down with a bunch of nonsense, right? But and but you're also not leaving like uh, room for these like unnecessary follow ups and like just being clear and direct is like such a gift to to have someone speak like that with me. You know, when someone's clear and direct, like when I'm dealing with someone in a business manner or we're in a professional manner or even in a friendship if someone's clear and direct with me it's the highest quality and expression of those kind of relationships when but then you have friends where you're just like oh man i I gotta go the long mile yeah each time i speak with them you know and like i think you know as as we grow in our path for self-discovery we have less room for that and that stuff kind of falls away too but it's not a personal thing it's just like what's necessary to keep going in more an absolute can you talk about the book yeah i just put out deity so inborn absolute and deity both came out in the last six years and inborn absolute was my friend tim kinsella who's amazing talented someone who i always have you know since i met him i've looked up to him and his taste has always been like impeccable and uh, he had inherited a book company that I was one of the first books that he put out. I, I worked with him and a guy named Ben Fosman who's, who's also a great Chicago artist, DJ. We both worked together on that book and I got to kind of do an interview for the book with Genesis. We're talking about Genesis from Psychic TV. I knew Genesis' manager 
And the thing was, like, I love Psychic TV, but I wasn't, like, a huge fan. I don't think I even owned any of the records. Yeah. But Genesis came to me because it was the first person that I thought of that just didn't have any kind of fucking hang-up, like, no fear. I, I love that about them. And I couldn't think of a better person to talk about my paintings with. Yeah. We were there two weeks later, and wow, what an experience, you know. Amazing. Jen, Jen was a force. You know, first the, the door was like kind of half a jar, and like we knocked on it, and it opened up, and Jen was at the computer just cursing at it. Yeah. And turned around and was like, what are we doing today? And I, said, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I was like, uh, the book, you know, like uh, uh, Ryan said you'd uh, do an interview with me. Oh. oh, right, right, the book, you know. After a while, Jen totally warmed up to us and um, shared a bunch of great music with us and a ton of esoteric secrets. And um, I, I brought Ash from Varanasi and I put Ash on Jen's head and Jen had Ash from Pashapati Nath in Nepal, put that on me. And Tim no. was like, what the fuck is going on? You guys are smearing Ash from various creation oh. grounds all over, all over each other's bodies. That, that is was my kind of party. You know? Once that happened, that really made the book a whole, it, it, it took on a, a different life and it really got us, really motivated to like make it as cool as we could and i, I want to do a follow-up andrew who does raking light we had talked about a print project uh, like a print suite of different deities i was like let's just make a book because i have a lot of them and it would be a lot of prints to make and i wanted to kind of offer like my relationship to the deities that i was painting i wanted to ask you about that because i i i have this i've had this feeling in the last year or so it's felt like there's a full circle kind of going with sacred texts, that new things need to be written, new systems and new ways outside of the old archaic. Your art feels like the animation of that particular principle of we are writing things that maybe now, you know, uh, will be used in a hundred years. Iconography that you're you're creating new scenarios with. Earlier, when I was talking about the Christ piece that I was working on, I was trying to explain that the the words in a lot of these texts for people now are just so archaic, and it's just it's just like a too too much of a different world for people. Yeah, a lot of the times it's just people they don't talk like right. They talked in biblical times, and the, <laughs> the vocabulary is completely different. But, yes. So I think it, it, a lot of it now, the pictures are more important than, than they ever were. And um, I think a lot's going to be expressed visually for the next 30 to 100 years yes. until people really do start writing some like actual new kind of dharmic texts. Yeah. Um, not just commentary, either, right? You know, like right. just actual like application based yes. uh, dharmic texts. Yes, like not like the second coming of Christ, Yogananda's commentary on on the Bible. Not like yeah, that. which is which is awesome. Which is you know yeah, and and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and can like lead. For right. those people, you know, that, that yes. could be kind of like a, a gateway for people to write the new text, yeah. you know, because first you have to, de- you know, like um, deconstruct the idea before it, it turns into like a new a new approach. The example I give all the time is like the hummingbird's beak, you know, over time, just the thought that it would be nice to get into the flower deeper. You know, just that thought there had to be a hummingbird at some point that craved that, that thing that is talked about in Hinduism of sort of God making it so difficult down here. So we long 
So we long to come home so it can feel our love or something. You know? Yeah, the, the separation drives us towards yes. it. That's the beauty of Sanatana Dharma mm-hmm. in a whole is that like it never stops. It, it continues. And what we're doing is exactly what the Rishis were doing. We might not be doing it as well. <laughs> we're, doing it in, <laughs> we're doing it in a different time, under yeah. different conditions, but yeah. we're doing the same thing. Yeah. You know? And uh, you know you're you're doing the same thing as the Buddha right. did, you know, and um, they're examples to us. And people think of us the spiritual world as this like different time thing yeah. that happens out in the clouds, yes, you know, or something right. that happened a long time ago. It is an ancient technology, but it's just as relevant, if not more relevant now than it ever was. You know, all those all the things that they talk about in the Bhagavad Gita are. 100% as relevant as they were when they were when that was spoken on the battlefield you know because right. the battlefield never stopped the battlefield still happens the crucifixion never stopped the crucifixion still happens you yeah. know like it all it's all still happening you know because it's it's all about the the physiology hasn't changed at all it's yeah. still us that's right it's still the gross material body you know and the the soul and the spirit and the uh, Purusham, Pakriti, and everything else. You know? Yeah, just the sneaking suspicion that I'm separate <laughs> all yeah. the time with yeah. this body. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, 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 you can put all the other things onto it. You know, yeah. you can put professional wrestling, you can put <laughs> baseball, you can put the Empire State Building, you know, whatever. You know, yeah. The presidents, all the, all the different... But it's still that one thing that I'm separate, right? You know, exactly. That I, that I, that I am this body. Yeah, you know? it is one of the things. You know, when 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 I really started waking up, my my compulsion was to leave the city. Was like, whoa! I can't believe I've been doing this this whole time. Like, yeah, what are yeah. we doing to each other? You know, and my kids. We must think of the kids and yeah. and their minds from being corrupted. You know, and so the it's so compelling to just want to leave. But one day, I heard this voice in me say, "If you go, who's going to help?" Yeah, and it and it was like, okay, so this is it. So I'm sure the Buddha. You know, he didn't like go off to um, uh, another country to go teach. Uh, primarily, he just worked with the environment that he was in. You know, yeah, and there was nowhere to go. Right? Where do you go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, exactly. You spoke of psychedelics earlier. You mentioned them lightly, and they they sound like they've been a part of your thing. Have you talked about that much? Yeah, yeah. I, I like talking about it. A lot of people kind of skirt the issue. It's been very formative. I'm not saying that I'm tripping on LSD. Yeah. I have it in years, you know. Right. But, you know, I've used ayahuasca for many years. I've worked with the, that plant, many different other kind of plants, mushrooms, um, all different kinds of stuff. And, again, I, I think they're an access point. The entheogens uh, can be an access point. It's not the final answer, um, but it, it's something that can help bring you to a, a place of understanding. Like I was saying before in the puja, um, what a great way to open up the subtle channels, you know. Definitely comes with a, a caveat of, like, you have to be really careful and you have to be really responsible and yeah. you have to be, you know, choose the people that you work with wisely and the plants that you work with wisely. And, um, you know, w- once I started 
kind of using more plant medicines like ayahuasca, mm-hmm. it kind of forced, it was a forsakening of all my other prior psychedelic experiences. Oh, for sure. You know, it was like for all sure. those times I, I dropped out LSD and went to a concert, you know, or ate mushrooms and went to a party or something like that. I'm like, oh man, I was doing it all wrong. Yeah. This is like a, a highly uh, reverent ceremonial thing that, you know, is a gift. Yes. Like I see ayahuasca as the divine mother, yes. you know, 100%. I see mushrooms as a divine manifestation here to help us. Um, you know, just like most, just like any plant yes. on the planet, you know? Yes. Um, but you know, you're having a very deep relationship when you're like preparing those kind of things. And, uh, yes, it's really important to do it right. Just yeah. like, it's important to find a good yoga teacher or a guru or a partner in life. Yeah. It's not as sexy uh, to suggest this to people, but it really, it, I feel greatly benefited me to have had a spiritual practice, have had done some, some work on myself prior to sitting in ayahuasca. I feel like yeah. uh, that doesn't get talked about enough. Let's say you had an addiction issue, but of course that's an emotional issue, you know, somewhere along the way we got hurt and and we're treating it you know uh getting sober initially doing that basic stuff and then maybe doing some therapy or you know finding a spiritual practice getting into meditation and then (laughs) going to sit ayahuasca it's a a strong suggestion because it feels like a lot to, to bring ayahuasca all of your shit and go here fix me is like yeah you know what i mean it's like a lot to put on the medicine and and the medicine might even show you something so far off what you think you need. Yeah, totally. You can't really dump your problems on your gurus or your <laughs> or the plants or the gods. You know, like, yeah. you, you need you need to do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think that uh, psychedelics can be like that. Yeah, you, you need to to maybe do a little bit more work before you wind up in a ceremony. Yeah, but you wind up there. At the right time, no matter what. Well, this has been a psychedelic experience for me, my friend. Honestly. Oh, man. It's really nice talking with you. It was like a great conversation. Yeah, for me too, man. And and I'm so grateful to know you and your time and your art. And, and I hope to have further conversations with you off mic. Yeah, I'd love to. Please stay in touch and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. You could find both of Robert's books, Deity, which is on Raking Light, rakinglightprojects.com. And The Inborn Absolute, the artwork of Robert Ryan, which you can find on Featherproof Books, Robert Ryan's shop, Electric Tattoo, in Asbury Park, New Jersey, is his dojo.